Good morning. So good to be with you today. Welcome to those watching online at CarnegieFree.com. My name is Adrian, and uh, if we haven't met, love to connect with you after the service. Whenever you'd like to say hello, I'd love to meet you. What a beautiful weekend, huh? Man, yesterday was so glorious outside, and to get some rain is a good, good thing. We are wrapping up this Rooted series. If you're just now joining us, we're in week 10 of what will be 11-week series. Next week, we'll wrap up with a number of testimonies and with baptisms and just kind of put a ribbon on this Rooted series we've been going through over these past 10 weeks. I hope it's been beneficial for you. It certainly has been beneficial for me, for our life group, for our family as well. And the hope in all of this has just been what you saw in that little video, that we would be more rooted, we'd be more established in the love of God and in community, in a number of personal rhythms for our own discipleship. And I hope that's begun for you or continued for you over these past 10 weeks. You know, I recently read an article in uh, the Atlantic magazine and a good place to find news, actually, that presents both sides of different uh, issues. But this is an article written by a man named Jake Miador, who's the editor of a well-known Christian site called Mere Orthodoxy. It's, it's a great website with lots of really, really good content. And uh, Miador uh, tells the story in this article that he was raised in a town where uh, pretty much everyone around him went to church. And all of his friends growing up went to church. And he, uh, he stayed in close touch with his different friends where he grew up because he stayed in the same place though that he grew up basically across his life. Now I think he's about 35 years old or so. And so he's still in touch well with a lot of the people that he grew up with. But the thing that he was troubled by and that he shared in this article is uh, n- none of his childhood friends go to church anymore. None. And as he's telling the story, um, you know, I, I just paused and then I, I thought about where he was from because, you know, it's easy to say, well, someone's from this place and, of course, that happens there. And uh, he wasn't from Chicago and he wasn't from Denver and he wasn't from Portland. He was from Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where he lives. And that was his experience. And he goes on to explain, as he's really aware of the social science and what's happened in the church in America over the past decades, he refers again and again in this article to what's called the great de-churching in America, in which 40 million Americans who used to go to church have left the church over the past 25 years. 40 million, which represents 12% of our nation. And obviously, COVID accelerated that. Maybe you're watching online today and you still haven't come back after COVID. You're still welcome. You're always welcome. Uh, I know COVID did accelerate that for some, but it wasn't just COVID. This has really been going on since the late 1990s that Americans have kind of decided that their lives are too busy or or there's other things that are too important that they just don't really have much room for church anymore. And what has resulted is over these last 25 years, the greatest shift, the number one greatest shift in church attendance in American history over the last 25 years. In either direction, this has been the greatest shift 
12% of the population, 40% that has stopped going to church since the late 1990s. And the results have not been pretty at all. There's a number of social science studies that have repeatedly demonstrated participation in church community actually correlates with better health outcomes, longer life, more financial generosity, and more financial stability than amongst those who do not attend church, both amongst men and women. Have you heard that Christianity oppresses women? Have you heard that? Come on, you can raise your hand if you've heard that. I'm sure you've heard that. It's a very common cultural narrative today. That Christianity oppresses women somehow. Well, there's two studies done by Harvard University just in the past six or seven years, both of which were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which totally contradict that. And what these two studies found, again from Harvard, is that women who attend church services at least two times a month are happier, they have lower rates of depression, they report happier and more secure marriages, they're 68% less likely to experience deaths of despair to alcohol or drugs, and they have five times lower suicide rate than those who do not attend church. Basically the opposite of that cultural narrative that church attendance is actually bad for women. Quite the opposite is it's really good for women and for men. Now, I, I know you won't remember all that I just said, but the point of all of that with those social science studies and Jake Meador's article is this. The point is not that we have somehow gotten too busy with other things, and our lives are really stable without the church, and so we're happy to move on. The point is, many people have moved on from the church, and America is the worst because of it. That's the point. Many people have moved on, and they're hurting, precisely because they have moved on from the church. What the studies show again and again is those who are committed to church actually have healthier, more engaged, more stable lives. The problem is in postmodern American culture, we've become a society that's been uprooted from that which is actually healthy for us. So what we've been trying to do again in these last 10 weeks is to help us get rooted once again, to help us get established once again in what is good and healthy for us. We've looked at uh, six different rhythms for the spiritual life, and today, while well, we look at the seventh, so far the rhythms that we looked at that are helpful for church engagement are uh, devotion and prayer, and a daily devotion to the Word of God, uh, growing in repentance, where we keep uh, short accounts with God, we share with God our... Um, our sins and our struggles, we confess our needs, we ask for, for his help, a serving in community, sacrificial generosity, learning to share our story of what Christ has done, and then today it's worship, the priority of regularly worshiping God, well, which we do in church community. 
These are activities that Jesus did, and by doing these same activities, we get to enjoy more and more of the presence of Jesus, and out of more and more of the presence of Jesus, that's what leads us to abundant life. Okay, please don't see these rhythms of discipleship as things that you just kind of check off your checklist, and you say, okay, I did those, and now I have this legalistic list that I can get rid of. Don't look at them that way. These are means to which we grow in our relationship with God, means to which we spend more time with God, and it's in the presence of God through longer moments with God and more frequent moments with God. That's how we get changed. Okay? And so we would find rhythms that would help us increase our frequency and our intensity of holy moments with God. So that's what we've been doing. Now, we're not there yet, not by any means. We've taken 70 days to build those rhythms, and that's a really, really good thing. We now have these habits that I hope and pray we would stay in over the days and months and even years to come, but we recognize, well, we're not there yet. I've heard it said that if God wants to make a squash, he takes six weeks, but if he wants to make an oak tree, he takes 60 years. Okay, so we're not there yet, but we have begun those rhythms. And the hope is from here, we continue to move toward engagement, deeper engagement in our church and in our church community through service and through life groups and the different things that we've been talking about in this series. Not so much attendance to church, that's necessary, but it's insufficient. What's sufficient is engagement with our church though, that would change us over time as we grow in these rhythms today. Uh, together as a church family. So what I want to do here though this morning is share with you five reasons to keep attending church, okay? Five good reasons not just to attend church, but, but even to engage in church. And these are five things that your church will do for you that really nothing else in this world is going to do for you, okay? Five really good reasons to, to be engaged in your local church community as we talk about the seventh rhythm, well, which is worship. Now, the first one is accountability. All right, everybody at once say, yippee, accountability. Okay, nobody is saying yippee to accountability. Nobody really wants accountability, and I totally get it. But accountability is really, really good for us. And we find accountability in our involvement, in our engagement in a local church community. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone among you is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person harshly. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Restore that person gently, lovingly. Be with that person in their struggle and restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens as you restore each other, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Now, here's the reality. Like, if you work for UNK, or you work for Eaton, or you work for Parker Baldwin, I'm going to guess that your boss doesn't care a whole lot about your character development. I'm going to guess that he doesn't care a whole lot about your moral fiber. But you know who does care about your moral fiber and your character development? Your life group. 
a group of eight or ten or twelve people around you who love you, who are willing to struggle with you, and have invitation to restore you gently and lovingly when you're beginning to get off track, to bear your burdens with you. We would do that for each other, and hopefully there's an invitation for at least a couple other people in each of our life groups that men or women have liberty to walk by our sides when we're getting off track, always for the purpose of restoration. I remember many years ago, there's a gentleman in my spiritual community, not my current life group, but a gentleman in my spiritual community during another time of life who gently came to me and we were in relationship with each other so he had the permission to come to me and struggle with me and even let me know some of my blind spots. He came to me and he gently said, Adrian, you know what? You could do a little bit better accepting people as they are. And I just felt like, who do you think you are? Tell me to accept. I accept everyone, as long as they're a lot like me. You know, like that's what I wanted to say. Get back in your place. But he was right. He was right. And I needed to hear his word because he exposed for me a blind spot that I didn't want to admit. And I care a lot about being a non-judgmental person that accepts people as they are, but he said, that which you care about, you seem to struggle with yourself. I'm so grateful that he had the courage to say that to me in loving community because it's in the context of these kinds of relationships that we actually can grow. Praise God. We actually can grow we can become more the kinds of people of character and moral fiber that we want to be, but sometimes that takes other people lovingly speaking into our lives about blind spots that we're missing. That's A, accountability. B is even more important than A. It's building each other up. And frankly, if you try to do accountability without a commitment to building one another up, without a commitment to encouraging each other, it won't be received well. It'll feel like a stick. When you try to give accountability over people, well, without first loving people right where they are and encouraging and building into people right where they are, it'll feel like a stick and they'll want nothing to do with it. This is why the New Testament has 21 different verses that speak to the one another's of how we would relate to each other in community. And they say things like this, love one another. Bear each other's burdens. Be kind to one another. Build each other up. Look out for each other. Treat one another up, or treat one another as better than yourselves. Look out for each other's interests, but before your own interests. All of this is related to building each other up. Here's two examples. One is 1 Thessalonians 5.11. It says, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are already doing. Here's the Apostle Paul, a wonderful cheerleader for his church, a coach, a pastor, that's saying, way to go, you're doing it. Keep it up. Keep encouraging each other. Keep building each other up. As you've been doing, keep doing it. And I would say the same thing to, to our church. I see this all the time in our church family. Keep it up. 
our um, Bible memory verse for uh, this week and our rooted experience is Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It's another powerful verse along these same lines. Would you say it out loud with me from the screen? Let's all read it together. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Now, if you're going to encourage each other, that says, it seems like the premise needs to be we spend time together. We meet together. We don't stop being in each other's lives as many are in the habit of doing. It says, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The portrait that the author of Hebrews is painting there, of course, is a cowboy with a spur on his boot, digging that spur into the side of a horse, saying, keep going, keep going in the right direction. That's not always pleasant, is it? Okay, you gotta be together to be able to do that. Like if someone does that to me via email, I don't want to hear it. How about you? I don't want to hear it. But someone comes to me and lovingly says, hey, here's something just to think about. It's in the context of community that we're able to do this for each other, that we build each other up in love. Unfortunately, there's this individualism and there's this focus on financial success and there's this focus though that's constantly on busyness in our culture that prevents us from doing this for each other. Again, that Atlantic article, Jake Meador writes this. He says, contemporary America simply is not set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Sit on that for a moment. Our culture, the way it's set up, simply doesn't promote mutual concern or care or any common life together. That is not our culture's goals in any way today. Instead, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Do you see this? We see this all the time. Defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's professional life. As a result, workism reigns in America. Man, I'm telling you, that is a quote to sit on for about an hour because that's what's going on. Workism becomes this kind of religion that reigns in America now because workism leads to professional accomplishment and financial success and it doesn't leave any room for things like mutuality and growing together in community and the result of that is a loneliness pandemic. I'll never forget the words of Mother Teresa who commented when she came to the uh, the prayer breakfast, the national prayer breakfast in America, and she was talking about all the the, the diseases of India, and, and she was given she she was asked questions about all the diseases of, of of India, and she said, "Yes, the diseases of India are terrible, but there's no disease worse than the disease of America, which is loneliness." That was her word. 
about 25 years ago, and it's true then, it's even more true today, to which we say, thank you, God, for the church. Thank you, God, for the church that has the capacity and the structure in place to love each other, to build each other up, to encourage each other, to be in community, to have those networks of mutuality and concern that we need so much. Now, a third thing, though, that we get from the church that we're not going to find anywhere else is ceremonies. There are a couple great ceremonies that God has given to us as a church that we would regularly practice in their communion and baptism. Jesus instituted these two ceremonies to teach us really important things about our faith that we would be reminded on a regular basis what is most true about us. I love that C.S. Lewis once said, it's not so much that I need new information, it's that I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded of what I already know. And so every single time that we take communion, we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us, and we're taken back to the central thing about us, which is the cross of Jesus that forgives us, that makes us the beloved children of God, beloved sons and daughters of God. And what God sees in us is the love of Jesus in and through us. And we would go back to the cross on a monthly basis and say, I belong to God. And what God says about me is what's most important about me. And so each time we take communion, we remember what Jesus said, Luke chapter 22, it's so critical for us. Jesus took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So every time we take this, we do so in remembrance of Christ, that Jesus loves us enough that he died for us. Like, don't ever get bored with that fact. Please don't ever just get used to that fact. Jesus loves you enough that he died for you to take your sins away. And every month as we take communion, we get to reinforce that in a very tangible way. God gave us this important ceremony. Likewise, he gives us the ceremony of baptism that as Christ followers, as believers, we would take this baptism that says, I identify with you, Jesus. Thank you for identifying with me. Romans 6 is the foremost theological passage on baptism in the Bible, and it goes like this. We were therefore buried with him, buried with Jesus through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so what it's saying when you choose to be baptized is, I'm with Christ and Christ is with me. And the old self, as the symbol shows, is in the water, dead, drowned, and no more. The new resurrected spiritual life comes out of the water as symbolized by baptism. And then the celebration is, I am forever his. 
He's died for me. He rose again. And as he rose in glory, as he was resurrected physically from the grave, that is a harbinger of my future resurrection as well. Because he lives, so also we shall live. These are not dead rituals, dead ceremonies, nothing but. These are primary ceremonies of remembrance to tell us again again, again and again what is the most important thing about us. I'm so grateful that God has given us the, these ceremonies to join together as a church and remember the kindness of God to bring us to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit through the blood of Christ. Accountability you get from the church. Building up you get from the church. Ceremonies that root us and establish us, that ground us. You get all that from the church. And then the D is discipleship. From the church, I hope and I pray that we would be a vehicle for your discipleship more and more toward Christ. I gotta tell you, I feel like as a church, we're in such a great place. And I'm so thankful for this church, the way you serve. Like, this is a really hardworking church. It's a generous fellowship. It's a prayerful fellowship. Though this is a church fellowship where we come together across many different generations and we love each other right where we are. We don't find our little cliques and then we forget about everyone else. We, we break through those things and we love each other across all of our differences. And we have a place of harmony right now as a church family and wonderful leadership underneath our elder board. There's so many great things about our church right now. But the thing that I'm most proud about our church right now is our joint commitment to discipleship. That's the thing that gets me up in the morning, is the excitement that we share together about being disciples to Christ. Because if one thing the New Testament teaches us that's very, very clear is Jesus does not merely want Christians, Jesus wants disciples. Three times believers in the New Testament are referred to as Christians. Anyone want to take a guess how many times we're referred to as disciples? 269 times. Three times we're called Christians. 269 times we're told to be disciples. What, what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who says, I want to be like Jesus in everything. If he were living my life right now, I would live my life as he would choose me to do today. In my work, in my family, in my neighborhood, in my personal disciplines. I would seek to know the things that he knows in order to do the things that he does in order to most importantly become the kind of man that he is. It's becoming like him in everything. That's the goal. Sadly, in America and in much of the West, it seems like we've settled for a form of Christianity that's, that's like almost believing, divorced from discipleship. Where it's like, I just go to Jesus to get saved from my sins, and that's that. And I, I want you to know, the New Testament doesn't know anything about that. The New Testament doesn't know anything about that. 
The New Testament knows nothing about like a vampire Christianity that says, I'm just going to have enough of the blood of Jesus to cover over my sins, and that's that. I'll be good. There's none of that in the New Testament teaching. The idea is we would be Christ followers who are changed. And as a result of that change, we become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now the key is you must decide. And we have to keep on deciding. So many, many of us are deciding now to be disciples of Christ in a very significant manner. Don't quit. You say to God, I need the power of your Holy Spirit to fill me each and every day that I would follow you each and every day. And I wouldn't quit with what I've begun over the last 70 days. And many of you have made new decisions over the last 70 days that are really, really significant. I've heard from people in our church that they've gotten to community for the very first time and they love it. I've heard from others in the church, I've learned how to repent to God and I feel like I'm walking with less guilt. I've heard from others that I've learned how to share my story of the difference that Christ has made in my life or I've joined the mission in some way. I've grown my prayer life in some way. I've embraced community in some way. God bless you for those decisions. Keep deciding those things because the simple fact is in this culture that we live in, nobody drifts into discipleship. There is nobody that casually drifts into discipleship in our culture. Instead, we casually drift into consumerism, individualism, and materialism. We have to decide, even on a daily basis, that I am going to be a disciple of Christ. And how much more powerful that is when we do it in community. Hey, is, is it difficult to follow Christ by yourself? Would you raise your hand with me if you found that to be true? Yeah, it's really difficult. I'll raise two hands. That's why the Bible describes no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians. We need each other. We really need each other to keep following Christ well with all we got. All right, the last word here, the last thing the church cut can do for us is give us a time on a weekly basis though, that we would set apart to exalt God as our King and our Lord. It's exaltation. And exaltation is just a really fancy word for worship. That when we come together here on Sunday mornings or on Sunday evenings well, with C20, that you consistently are a part of a church service well, where you exalt God together. Along with brothers and sisters, we come to church and we sing praises to God and we really sing them out loud like we mean them. And we pray to God and we listen to the word of God and we greet each other and we love each other. And in all of those things, we do them as an act of worship. And if we set aside a day to do that, or a few hours at the very least on Sunday morning to, to do that, to love each other in that way, to love God in that way, guess what? It becomes a springboard for, for us to worship God the rest of the week. And worship by no means is just about singing. That's just a starting point. Worship is about all of life. But make no mistake, it is a powerful thing when you begin your week with a word of exaltation to God singing to God and saying, I believe in you, I trust you, I surrender to you, I give my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength to you, and out of this, would you lead me to love you more, though, this week? That's exactly what Paul's talking about here in Colossians 3. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly 
As in your church community, you teach and you admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, through hymns, and through songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And then, whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You begin with worship, and then you continue on with worship throughout the rest of the week. That's, that's what we go for as disciples. As a truck driver, I worship God. As a banker, I worship God. As a father, as a husband, as a nurse, as a teacher, as a coach, I worship God. Wow. And the church would be a vehicle for facilitating these five critical things for our lives. Let me wrap up with this. Do you remember, um, remember these trees that we started with 10 weeks ago? Those are so awesome, aren't they? Those giant sequoias in Northern California, like they're as wide as a small house. And they reach up to the sky 300 feet tall. And how is it these massive trees stand? Do you remember? The roots are intertwined with each other. So they do have a root system that goes down 10 or 12 feet, but that by itself is not enough to make trees like that stand. As they get buffeted by the wind and they go through intense rains, and seasons of drought and lots of snow, 10 to 12 feet down is not enough for these trees to stand amidst the winds and the harsh realities of their lives. And so they interlock their roots underneath the surface such that hundreds of feet wide, they are stronger together than they could ever be alone. And that, my friends, is a powerful portrait of a healthy church operating together for the glory and honor of God. May it be. May it be. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this church. It's a great church, and we are so thankful to worship in this place. So thankful, Lord, for the way you're growing us together as a church community the way we're growing in love for each other, love for those inside these walls, and love for those outside these walls too. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to be a generous people, a service-oriented people. Thank you, Father, for leading us to our knees where we would confess our sins and struggles and our need for your help each and every day. Thank you, Father, for leading us to personal devotion and prayer. All of these things that you've done in us over these past 10 weeks, we are so thankful. We say together with one voice, we, we desire to keep it up. And we don't have the strength and the resources to do it on our own. And so we lean into you, Lord God, and we decide. We decide. We decide to keep following Jesus, to be his disciples, to do so in community, to let the world know. You're a good and kind God. Thank you for allowing us to be part of all this. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.